The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association. Welcome to Season 5 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, I'll be chatting with a great lineup of leaders in Australia's retail industry right here in the Amex Lounge, including the CEOs of some of the biggest retailers in Australia and across the globe. We'll be finding out what makes them tick, what defines their leadership style, and how they got to the top of their game. Joining me for some retail therapy today is Alicia Hopkinson, the CEO at APG & Co. Alicia has been an instrumental part of APG & Co for more than a decade and has worked in the fashion industry both in Australia and internationally for over two decades. For decades, APG & Co has curated a collection of Australia's most beloved fashion brands, including Sportscraft, Saba and Jag. And I'm delighted to have Alicia in the studio. Alicia, welcome. Thank you, Paul. Now, fashion is one of the most fiercely competitive sectors in retail. What do you need to do to stand out from the crowd? Oh, look, I think, first of all, it's wonderful to see Australian retail getting better and better forever. We've been second to say what happens in the Northern Hemisphere and I think we're getting stronger and stronger. I think customer expectations are also increasing as we're all well-travelled and we've got to do a better job in product, in brand experience, store experience, including presentation and service. Online's got to be succinct and for many of us, ESG is becoming more important as well. So quite a complex mix of things to deal with. Now, I noticed one of APG's core values states that thriving on change. How are you and the organisation using change and transformation to your advantage? Look, I think the topic for today is around that curiosity, a curiosity in different mindsets uh, to do things differently, curiosity to get more learnings from why the customer's behaving in a certain way, curiosity to consider more diverse points of view, and just the curiosity to actually want to try and do things differently. Are you looking to add further brands to the APG repertoire or focus on your existing assembly of brands? When we look at the history of APG, there's been such a, a great family of brands. What's the plans? Oh, look, we would absolutely love to add another brand to the fold. We've got a good infrastructure to be able to add on. But I think at the moment, we're very focused on getting more growth out of, out of our existing brands. And it will just depend on the right time and the right business. Now, let's talk about yourself, Alicia. You did start some time ago at, at APG, but maybe take us back to your start in retail. Tell us more. Gosh, I actually grew up and absolutely did not want to be in fashion. Uh, went and studied advertising. And my father was obviously very involved in the industry and I had it around the dinner table. And I think what I probably, after going and studying marketing and getting a job in advertising, everything I did played back into fashion. And then I ended up with my first role in fashion. And here I am, you know, 20 years later. So where was it? Where was your first job? In fashion? Yes. It was in Sassenbide. Okay. So you grew up in the, as part of the, the Sassenbide sort of brand portfolio? Uh, yeah. I was with Sassenbide when the girls... I think it must have been about three years in. There was about 14 people when I started there and I took a role in sales. Sarah Jane was shifting to focus more on PR and I picked up the sales side of her position mm. 
by the time I left, there was 50, I think it was 50 persons in head office. Wow. So, so you said you didn't see yourself originally in a fashion role, but of course, that's where you're at now. Oh, it looked way too complicated. Yeah, well, it is, it is, it is. When you reflect on your career, how do you sort of see fashion and the industry and the complexity that you're dealing with right now? How has it evolved? Yes. Look, I think that when I was, when we were... Years back, I think when I would watch it as a child, it was probably more about commodity. And I think today brands are much more important. There's just so much commodity everywhere that people, to be sustainable, people want to be attached to a brand and buy into a brand. Product is obviously king and it's got to be right. But I think we recognise that today brand is also very important and having a database of customers that are loyal to you and you can continually communicate with. Mm. So tell us a little bit about loyalty because now you can sort of measure that, don't you? Because there's a much more sophisticated systems to sort of see loyalty. How has APG developed their loyalty programs over time? Look, we've got a very loyal customer base and I think that we're probably, we rely on our heritage of our brands and part of that is constantly thriving to be fantastic in our quality. I'm talking particularly about sports craft at the moment. Yes. Classic, reliable shapes that the customer can always come back and know that they'll look uh, well invested in uh, whilst being on trend, but Mm. they're not wanting to be the most standout, trendiest person there. So we're kind of, you know, we, we stick to that and that's allowed us to be able to gather a database and we continually try to communicate back with them. Yeah, so many retailers do collect lots of data. How do you use that data to actually understand from a marketing perspective? perspective to actually serve up what the customer wants. We're constantly analysing our data. We're analysing, you know, how many options that they're buying at the one time, what the basket size is, how often they're coming back, where they're shopping from, what geographical areas that they're in. It allows us to become more educated when we're shaping new ranges for future customer bases. So we're constantly analysing that and using that data to be able to not only acquire new customers, but also increase their net worth with us. So it's become a much more powerful tool collecting that data. And look, I think um, across all avenues today, data is so much more available. And the challenge for all of us in retail is to understand which questions to ask and how to use the data. Because if anything, we've probably all got too much data. Right. If you think about your career and the rise to the CEO position, so it's interesting to understand what other roles you had an interest, obviously, in advertising marketing. What other roles have you done before getting to the CEO's role? Look, I've been in our business for, I think it's over just over 14 years. I have popped in and out and had a few babies in that time as well. But I've had the opportunity to be able to focus in different parts of the business, whether it be on top of product, whether it be setting directions, whether it be running marketing, running buying departments. And it's really given me a great helicopter view of how the entire business works. The rise to a CEO position can sometimes be tough and tumultuous. Did you ever experience self-doubt? Look, I'm 12 months into this role, although, albeit, been in our business a long time. And I think that no matter what position I've been in, there's always been a level of self-doubt. And I think that you actually need a bit of self-doubt because otherwise you stop listening to people around you and that curiosity Mm. doesn't actually consider other learnings. In saying that, it's absolutely been a ride. And I'm very, I think, probably fortunate to have a team that I've worked with a long time around that can fill in for the areas that are not my strengths sure. and trust in me in regards to where we're going for the future. Do you think it's important to understand what your strengths are as a CEO and not always believe you've got to be the most 
Absolutely. The smartest person in the room? Absolutely. I mean, I think for me what's really key is knowing out of my team who's actually better at something and leaning into them. I'm a very kind of transparent and authentic leader and I, I think that obviously comes with pros and cons but yes. it allows it to be, you know, we're very real in the exec room when we're talking about what's happening and what's not. Well, this has become the big thing, isn't it, for leaders to be authentic. When you think about authentic leadership, what does that mean to you? I think it means really being able to be comfortable to be vulnerable. I think to be able to call things when you're not sure. And I think really being transparent with not only the exec team, but other team members as well. Mm. Do you think that the self-doubt issues that you would have had through your career. Is that a gender-based issue? Because I talk to lots of women and it seems to be a common thread. Uh, Maybe we're more open to discuss it. I can't, I wouldn't imagine that there isn't self-doubt in everybody, but whether you've got the, can I say, strength to actually acknowledge it? Well, I think it's a real skill and absolutely it's a strength. When you think about your career, what is the best piece of career advice you've received? Oh, I've got lots of, I've been very fortunate, I think, to have people that have taught me many things along the way. I think in our world, you know, recognise what's in your control and what's out of your control and (laughs) you can't really change the things that are outside of your control. I don't make a decision if you're not actually quite sure what the problem is and the 80-20 rule you know really 80% of the results are probably coming from 20% of what you're doing and how do you actually prioritize constantly that's a really really good point now you would have had some mentors through your time can you think about your career has it been one specific mentor that stood out or has it been many mentors that you've taken the best of over time Uh, look I think mentor is always an an interesting word. I hear it all the time and you hear how people are set up to be your mentor. And I think I've been fortunate to have a lot of that. But funnily enough, some of the biggest influence for me have not been those that are staged to be a mentor. And I I recognise that they can actually come from all areas of the business. I've had people reporting into me that, that actually have played a role as a mentor as well as above. And often it's the quiet people that are around the outside that you can learn from. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, I think if I can just add one thing on that is another piece of advice that's really important, I think, in our industry is be careful who you listen to. And I think the older you get, you start to listen to everything but choose which parts to take and do something with. And a lot of it, understand what to not listen to. Yeah, no, that's really, really good advice. Do you think that sometimes intuition has a part to play in our industry when you're trying to make decisions, solve complex problems, you're getting lots of advice? How does intuition play in that? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the creative space that we live in. And with all these technology and data coming through, it may make us more efficient and um, allow us to get information earlier. But we've got it. You've got to have a gut instinct to understand what the next trend is, where your customer is and how you're going to deliver that at the right time for them. So trust your gut's a really important message. Absolutely. We talked a little bit, Alicia, about authentic leadership. If you think about your leadership style, how would you describe it? I'd say I'm open. I'm honest. Sometimes times possibly too honest. <laughs> I'm vulnerable. I think how I would describe my my style is I probably like to set a vision. I like to align with the people around me. And then I like to allow people to get there in their way. And I think one thing I'm trying to do at the moment is lean more into the green shoots and what's working. Somebody recently said to me, you know, in our world, we constantly walk in and we're looking for the problems to fix. And the funny thing is that there's always a worse seller. How do we lean more into what's working as yes. we're looking for growth and spend more energy on that? Yeah, yeah, very good good point. If you think about too with your leadership style, has it developed and changed much over time? Has it been? Absolutely. Yeah, so Absolutely. describe that journey f- for us. Oh, look, I think as we all get a little bit more experience, we start to take a different 
lens on you things. You mean older? Yes, older. <laughs> I, funnily enough, am having had children and leave the leave the business and then come back in. I feel that it's allowed me to come in with a different lens every time. Right. And I guess that life experience allows you to see things a little bit differently. Um, my position now is very much about, I see it as partnering with my exec team and influencing them. Mm. Um, I'm not real. I don't manage them. Uh, you know, we're all adults and uh, we're really just trying to, you know, shoot the goal. So... Yeah, it's certainly come from more of an influence. Fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about Sportscraft. So last year, Sportscraft launched a 70-piece collection of traceable Australian merino wool garments that champion the eco-credentials of the fibre and its journey from land to garment. Now, that's amazing. Tell us about this because we know sustainability has been really topical. Having that traceability has been really important. Tell us a little bit about this and how this has came about. Yeah, so we've had a long-standing relationship with Woolmark since 1964. Wow. And we started working with them with a company called Everledger. It's a third party that gives us full traceability. Look, I think we're, we're very committed to our ESG plans and being a Heritage Australian brand and wool being an Australian um, material, well, predominantly majority of the wool used in apparel comes from Australia. It's really fantastic for us to be able to understand that traceability and be able to give back to another industry in our country. We're very proud of our Australian heritage and sports craft and a lot of our campaigns circle back into that. How important do you think sustainability is becoming within the fashion industry? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'm, I think where it aligns with our business and our customers' um, values. But I must say it is a question of debate. When you see the likes of businesses that um, pop up and take huge market share, and I don't want to say any names, but um, may not be so sustainable, yet they're the fastest growing apparel retailer, it certainly puts some uh, questions as to how important it is. I think ethically, we all owe a level of shifting it forward. We're trying to move what we feel is right for our pace and our organisation. And I'm very proud with where we're at. Yeah. I think our next opportunity is to share where we're at more so with our customers and leverage off taking them on that journey with us, whilst also using our voice to educate mm. the market. Do you think sustainability requirements of consumers at a generational issue or do you think most customers are wanting this now from from fashion retailers? I I think that we'll see more coming through from the next generation and the reports that come through continue to say that they're voting for it. Mm. They're voting for it with their mouth. Whether they're going to put that money and pay for it, I think we're yet to see. Yes. So it's 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 the tough question, isn't it? Are people prepared to pay? And what's your view of that? Look, I think my view is that we will continue to get more transparency and understand where things are from. We, we've all got to edge towards it because I think it's the right thing and we need to, you know, some of us that do manufacturing in other countries, it's important that we've got things like living wages. We've got a strong view in regards to how they're operating and how we're auditing, auditing them. So I think it's really very important for the industry. I think the challenge is that it's very hard to measure still. Are there any other areas that you would like to drive from a sustainability perspective so that you've talked a bit about modern slavery and the traceability? What other areas are, are, are you thinking about right now when it comes to sustainable fashion? Look, we've, we're passionate in this space and we're trying different things. I think probably one of the topics that's 
probably relevant to this conversation, which comes into sustainability, but it's also how we're constantly trying to do a better job at creating more beautiful styles of great quality for our customers is using 3D design. Right. So we're quite invested in that. It's fantastic in regards to the sustainability sense because we're doing less sampling. We've got less shipping of garments back and forth, but ultimately we're getting better we're getting better designs out of our designers mm. that we've got clearer visibility across the whole team before we actually make a bulk purchase. When you think about your career and you think back to your younger self, what advice would you be giving yourself now <laughs> further down, being further down the track and achieving all that you've achieved in your career? Gosh, it's always such a um, great question to stop and reflect, isn't it? Um, and look, I've got three daughters, so I probably it comes up a little bit more I think probably be a little bit more fearless. I think we all tend to hold back. I don't know whether that's a female thing, but hopefully the next generation will be a little bit more fearless. So take more risk, do you feel, considered risk? Uh, speak up. Yeah. Speak up. Yep. Take more risk. Um, have a voice. Have an opinion. Just because everyone's got the same opinion doesn't mean it's right. Mm. And the other thing I think is we, we, as females, I guess sometimes we're limited in regards to being able to manage the, have the children, have the family. Yeah. And it is a challenge, but don't let it stop you. Yeah. So, so if you think about three, I mean, three kids, is that three girls? Yes. Um, so how did you balance and spin all those plates during that time between having a successful career and actually managing a home life? I think I wouldn't say I do it successfully. And I think any, any mother would say to you that that success work's got a, a challenge to it because our guilt's, our guilt is always, we should be everywhere where we're not, there's never enough time. So what advice would you give to women that are contemplating having children and having a career? Uh, Look, I think it's an interesting question because society tells us that we've got to be everywhere. Yeah. So how do we raise the next generation to be okay, to be actually at work and know that it's good for the children to see you there and you don't have to be the one that's actually doing the traditional motherly roles? Yes. Um, I think for me, I've got a supportive home environment. Um, so that's really important, right? Really important. I think I've got a supportive office environment and I delegate a lot and I rely on a lot of people around me and I'm, I'm okay with that. That's a really good place to end. Alicia, thank you for joining me today for some retail therapy. Congratulations on all the work you're doing on the fashion scene and good luck in the coming years. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for joining me today for Retail Therapy in the Amex Lounge. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You won't want to miss an episode. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of new episodes, over 50 now, on our website. We've covered small business, sustainability, tech and innovation, and we even release a yearly Christmas mini-series. For more information on what we do at the ARA, head to retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes. I'd now like to welcome Kelly Taggart, CEO of Roses Only, to the Amex Lounge. Roses Only is a leading Australian-owned retailer for delivered premium flowers and gifts. Its passionate florists, friendly floral consultants and dependable delivery drivers have brought joy to millions of people all over Australia. Formed in 1995, it brings together 45 years of floristry experience and established 10 florist studios in major cities nationwide as well as some partner florists. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. Since its inception in 1995, Roses Only would have witnessed a lot of change and development in the floristry business. What are some of the ways you've innovated and evolved the business? 
Yes, we've uh, certainly seen a lot of changes since 1995. Uh, back then, I think uh, you would have been going into a physical florist shop to buy your flowers. And these days, you have a lot of options where you can buy online, whether it's uh, through your mobile phone, either calling someone and talking to a real person or buying online through your phone or your laptop. So it really um, provides a lot of advantages there in ways that you can order in all manner of types. We've even had someone that has called in while they were riding a horse uh, and ordered flowers on their way to whatever it was that they were doing, riding a horse, would you believe it? So I guess um, back then also, first when we were online, payment options, uh, there wasn't many available. So I think we only had one payment option available. And then it's been with the likes of relationships like American Express that we've been able to really diversify those payment options for customers. And even now, uh, recently, we've been able to roll out uh, pay with points for American Express. So you can pay with your credit card points to buy your flowers, which we think is really cool. So I guess the evolution of social media has also impacted our industry quite a bit. The way that we market to customers online, uh, the rise of Google AdWords um, is a major part of the floral industry, knowing where you want to deliver something and being able to search for flower delivery to Sydney or flower delivery to Brisbane. That's generally been on the rise since um, online has increased. Uh, and also being understanding of how we can impact uh, the environment um, with more sustainable floristry as well. And I guess over the last 15 years, we've really focused on being a data-driven company and using that data to make sure that we're not creating the waste in the first place. So making sure that we're buying what we need for when we need it, for when our customers want it, which I'm sure you can imagine is a really difficult task. Uh, we have about 100 different types of flowers and greenery that we manage throughout the year. Um, so you can imagine the complexity that goes with that. And we've been able to get our wastage down to around 2 to 3% overall, which I think is pretty fantastic. Apart from that, though, we're always looking at ways that people are doing things internationally and talking to our local flower farms to see what other sort of uh, business practices we can adopt as well. From before the days of the pandemic until now, what kind of patterns have you noticed in customer behaviour and how has this impacted the way you future-proof your business? I think not much has changed in the way that people still want things really fast and really reliably. But we were already investing in our digital infrastructure for, our, um, for all of our warehouses around the country. And then when the pandemic hit we saw a volume really increase. So people were, they couldn't visit their loved ones. They really wanted to send a message of love to people. And we saw that really expand. And that was a really beautiful thing to be a part of. So this meant that the advancement that we've had in our technical and digital capabilities through reliable and scalable digital practices meant that we could really provide great customer service to people uh, and reliable delivery. So I guess with more customers looking at 
buying online, that's meant that we've had a much more expanded customer base to talk to. And uh, thankfully, uh, they've had a really good experience with us and they've been able to experience our brand and how wonderful it is to send flowers to someone and hear the smile on someone's face when they call you or send you a message. And that's definitely driven driven a lot of uh, customer growth and repeat customers post-pandemic. So that's been really great for us. 